For scripture reading this morning, we will be reading from Psalm 27. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And if you would open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 11 this morning. And this is a beautiful passage, and it really poetically describes the roles of suffering and comfort you know, at first glance, these two um, experiences seem to be directly opposed to each other. But we, we see in this passage and, and throughout Scripture, as well as, I believe, in our lives, that suffering and comfort are closely connected. For how can we be comforted unless we have first suffered? And does not the suffering that we experience enhance our appreciation of the comfort that we receive? You know, suffering is a, a universal, universal and ubiquitous problem. We know there are stories of, of Christians being persecuted in, in countries that are hostile to the faith. And suffering, though, isn't always so violent or visible as, um, as happens in, in other countries. Even in what appears to be a comfortable society here, we too face our own afflictions. And though our suffering might be different than another's suffering, we still need to end up dealing with the hard things that we're experiencing in our lives. And so for some, it is the pain of loss, loss of family, loss of friends, loss of material provisions. For some, it is the pain of isolation, feeling that there's no one else that can walk this path with you and that you're left to figure it out and on your own. And for some, it is the pain of pain. Life just hurts. Life is hard, and it's dark and feels hopeless. But for believers in Christ, this passage tells us, 
In this affliction, we do have hope. There is comfort. The grave was not the end. The story of the suffering of Christ did not end with his death. He was raised from the dead. He emerged from the deepest, darkest suffering ever experienced by man. So Jesus was victorious over the power of death, and we know that he is stronger than the crushing power of suffering. And so he suffered not only to provide for us an example of suffering love, but also to provide for us a way of escape from the penalty for sin that we deserve, so that we too can live abundant and eternal lives. So our ultimate comfort then comes at the expense of Christ's suffering. So we see here in this passage, Paul explores the relationship of suffering and comfort. We will suffer and we will be comforted. And for the Christian, suffering does not need to have the last word. Comfort will eventually come, even though it might seem a long way off. The key, though, to understanding and experiencing this comfort comes as we understand and experience the God who saves us and the community of people in which we live. So comfort comes from God, and it comes from other people. As Christians, we we live in community. We are saved into the body of Christ. We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house, as it says in 1 Peter 2. Paul says that we suffer with Christ, and it's clear from his experience, though, that he also suffered at the hands of other people, even from fellow believers. And at the same time, we are comforted by Christ, and we are comforted by other believers. And so, in other words, the Christian life is is relationship vertically and horizontally, that the transforming power of the gospel is such that the believer will grow in his relationship with God and with others. This passage can be summarized in three statements, and I'll use these three statements as an outline for the sermon, and I stole them shamelessly from commentator Warren Wiersbe. But he says, remember what God is to you, remember what God does for you, and finally remember what God does through you. What God is to you, what God does for you, and what God does through you. So let's read our passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort." For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So, it was several weeks ago we looked at the introduction and the background to this book. So, Corinth was a major city located in modern-day Greece. It was known for its financial power as well as its immorality. And the social influences of the time pressured people to be successful in the, the visible and worldly sense of the word. This was a city in which people would erect monuments in their own name to celebrate some accomplishment or contribution they had made to society. And so if you weren't a particularly powerful or influential person, it was important that you were connected to someone who was. But Paul spoke of himself or his reputation in this book in chapter 10. He said that they thought of him as his bodily presence was weak and his speech was of no account. And then he also tells us in chapter 12 that he had a thorn in the flesh, which was was thought to be a chronic health condition that he suffered. So in other words, Paul's status wasn't that significant. He he didn't have that visible um, power and influence that these people looked for. And so some in the Corinthian church were rejecting his leadership and his authority in favor of other men. But these other men preached another gospel, and they were leading people astray. They were false teachers. And so as Paul is writing this letter to defend himself as an apostle and also to defend the gospel as he had delivered it to the church. But instead of inflating or appealing to his own credentials, Paul did the opposite of what you might expect. He spoke of his sufferings, and he spoke of his weakness, and he spoke of his dependence on other people. But to those who understood the essence of the gospel message, his focus on weakness did not distract from the gospel, but it illustrated it. His weakness underscores the gospel's power. As he says in chapter 12, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." And so here from the opening, instead of his typical prayer of thanksgiving for for his audience that he does in many letters, he he dives right into a discussion on suffering. Not necessarily a great way to build rapport with people who are looking for a leader that is successful and popular. And and we see this, this theme of suffering throughout the book. In chapter four, he says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Christ may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And in chapter 11, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. To Paul is not shy about the reality of suffering. He does not deny the hardships of life. He certainly does not present the Christian life as one that has no suffering. And he does not promise prosperity to those who name it and claim it. But neither does he glorify suffering. He doesn't say that suffering is to be pursued for the sake of of gaining favor with God. But instead, he talks about suffering in a way that it's it's something that, that allows us to come to a better understanding about God and ourselves. Suffering is a catalyst 
for our growth. And so his first point here is remember what God is to you. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If suffering is to have any redemptive results in our life, it will be as our focus is turned outward and upward. And so in this opening verse, Paul turns their focus away from themselves and away from himself. It's not primarily about them as a body of believers or about him as their leader. You know, life in Christ is not about us. It's about God. And if our reference point is ourselves instead of God, we will go astray. Job is a well-known example of suffering in the Old Testament, and I think um, his experience is, is instructive to us. So we know after he lost all his, his wealth, his possessions, his children, and even his health, he was left sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping his sores with a piece of broken pottery. And his wife told him to, to curse God and die. He, he's, he's lost everything. Just, just give it up. But Job held fast to his integrity. He said, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And so Job, even in his suffering, he remembered who God was. He did not curse God just because he was suffering. He appealed to the sovereignty of God. God can give us what is good, and God can allow us to suffer. Now, Job was honest about his suffering. He didn't think his suffering was just. He did not pretend it was easy. He wished he had never been born. So his emotions were were up and down. He was questioning God. He was challenging God. He didn't understand why he was suffering. But he maintained his, his faith in God. He said in chapter 13, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And then in chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So Job knew who God was. In the midst of his suffering, he remembered who God was to him. He expected some sort of redemption, even though he didn't know what it would look like. He didn't know if he would survive his experience, but he knew God was greater than suffering. Which is a reminder to us that the goodness and faithfulness of God is not determined by our circumstances. And our experiences cannot be a reliable guide to establish whether God is good. That was true for Job, and it is true for us. Whatever it is that we know about God, we know it because he has revealed it to us through his word. And our experiences and emotions may confirm what is true about God or suffering and evil, but they do not establish the truth. The New Testament saints then had an advantage the Old Old Testament people did not have. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to something they did not fully understand. They believed the promises of God without receiving them, as it says in Hebrews 11. But in the incarnation, we see God. We see the Word becoming flesh. God enters into humanity. The Son of God becomes the Son of a woman. He lives among us. He proclaimed the kingdom now here. He called the children to himself. He touched the lepers. He honored the social outcasts. He lived in obedience and dependence on his Father. And so we see in the life of Christ 
God in tangible, observable ways. And so the Apostle Paul here, writing to the Corinthian church, who is inward-focused and self-promoters, opens his letter by focusing on God. He calls them to remember who God is. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of mercies, or the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. You know, that the suffering love that Jesus demonstrated is not distinct from the Father's love. And, and this was a, a truth that was, it, it was a light bulb moment for me at 15 years ago. Um, one, one evening I was, I was reading an article and, and that truth came, came true to me and, and it's still true today that, that the, the love of Jesus is not separate from the Father's love. The compassion Jesus showed to the suffering, to the outcasts, the nobodies, the have-nothings, is the same compassion that the Father has toward his children. You know, Jesus isn't just some agent that the Father sent to, to smooth over his anger at us. Jesus came to earth to show us the Father, and the Father loves you. And so Paul says, remember who God is to you. But don't stop there. Remember what God does for you. Christ did not just come to show us God's love in living. He came to die. He suffered in his living. He suffered in his dying. Christ suffered for us. You know, he experienced every kind of suffering. It says in Hebrews 4, he's able to sympathize with our weakness and that he's been tempted in every respect as we are. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. But he wasn't saved from death. He learned obedience through what he suffered, it says in Hebrews 5. And so we've been reminded this week of all that Christ suffered for us. He lived in obedience before the Father. He lived as our perfect example. And yet he suffered. He suffered humiliation abandonment and betrayal. His friends left him and his enemies beat him. He was tortured. He suffered physical pain and emotional and spiritual isolation and ultimately died the most humiliating and gruesome death that they could inflict on him. But his sufferings were not just meant to show us how much he loves us. His suffering and death were not just an object lesson in love, although he is our supreme example. There's a book, Why Does It Have to Hurt, by Dan McCartney, and he makes a point that Jesus' suffering actually accomplished something, which we know. It has very clear purpose and meaning. His death rescues us from eternal death. His separation from the Father accomplishes our restoration to the Father. And so in the death of Christ, we are rescued from death. We are saved into eternal life now because of the suffering of Christ. The empty tomb proves to all the world that God will have the last word, and suffering is not the end. And so, as Christ suffered for us, our suffering links us to Christ in a way that no other experience can do. You know, as, as we take communion, we, we participate with the suffering of Christ in a, in a sacramental or symbolic sort of way. We, we partake of the bread and the cup 
as we remember his broken body and spilled blood. And it is a means of grace in our lives, and it can, can minister to our soul in, in real and transformative ways. But in, in suffering, we further identify with Christ in an experiential way. When we experience betrayal or isolation, or when we experience the dark night of the soul or physical pain, we get a taste of the suffering of Christ, and we identify with his suffering in a personal way. But it doesn't stop with just us identifying with his suffering. McCartney says that identifying with the suffering of Christ also connects us to the hope of the resurrection. The suffering of Christ was brought to its full purpose in his resurrection. And so we too will experience the full redemption of our suffering at some point in the future. So Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 4 that God comforts us in all our affliction. So remember what God does for you. God's comfort in our affliction is possible because of his death and resurrection. And for those who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. So our ultimate affliction, whether we acknowledge it or not, is separation from God. And through Christ, we can experience the ultimate comfort when we are redeemed to God. But we still live in a broken world. We, we live in a world that has suffering and evil, and God comforts us. We may see through a glass darkly. We don't see the end of the path we are on. We don't understand how God intends to redeem our particular hardships. But God's comfort does not always mean deliverance from our hardship. Even Jesus was not spared from death, even though he cried out to be saved from it. Our suffering is not easy, but it is part of the human experience. And for the Christian, it is something that connects us to a God who is sovereign and who is good. But more importantly, to a God who will see us through, to a God who has demonstrated the power of the resurrection. And we see in the the Psalms an example of how to live well in the face of suffering. We see them wrestling with their emotions, with with fear and anger and disappointment. We also see them expressing a confidence in a God who is near. And I was reminded, like Jonah in the belly of the fish, they remembered who God was to them, and they remembered what God had done for them, and they turned their faces to God and we should do no less. Finally then, Paul exhorts his readers to remember what God can do through them, and that's really what the the bulk of his passage is about. God comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort those who are in any affliction. The focus has been vertical, now it goes horizontal. I think that the take-home is that suffering in the Christian community should not be an isolated experience. As we participate in Christ's sufferings, we share in his comfort. And so suffering takes on a new purpose. It equips us to comfort others. Comfort comes through affliction, and both can be experienced in community. So Paul says in verse 6, If we are afflicted, it is so you can be comforted. But if we are comforted, then you are comforted. 
but you are comforted because you patiently endured the same sufferings that we suffered. So Christ suffered for us, and we identify with Christ through suffering. We receive comfort from Christ, but we also suffer with others. We weep with those who weep. The Christian life is not meant to be experienced in isolation from others. So sharing and suffering is more than putting the crying face emoji on someone else's sad Facebook post. It means that we actually get close enough that we hurt too. Are we willing to get close enough to others that we truly share in their affliction? How else will you share in their comfort? How can you comfort from a place of never having experienced pain? And we live in such an individualistic society that getting close to others is hard to do. It, it feels awkward. We don't like to be vulnerable. We like to protect our weak spots. We want to project competence and strength, even if it feels like a fraud. We don't want to let anyone know we are suffering because it doesn't seem like the strong thing to do. And, and we're scared to get too close to others who are suffering because we don't know what to do with them. We're afraid things might get messy if we get too involved. We want to let them sort out their own issues and take responsibility for their own problems. So maybe one way you keep your distance is by going to a church that is big enough that you can kind of get lost in the crowd. No one knows you that well. No one expects a lot out of you, and you prefer to keep it that way. You don't want to make any commitments. You don't want to make yourself vulnerable by accepting any positions of leadership. You don't attend discipleship groups because that's too close to other people. I will hasten to say there are many people here who are very involved and give themselves sacrificially, who suffer and weep with and comfort others. And that is the power of the gospel in the community. But in an audience this size, there are also people who struggle to be connected and who are isolated. Some prefer to be isolated and disconnected, and some suffer because they are isolated and disconnected. And the call of the gospel is to love, is to be a people who are known by our love. It's the second greatest commandment. If we have experienced the saving and transforming grace of Christ in our lives, we will grow in our love of other people. And part of loving others is being willing to suffer with and comfort others. And so Paul seemed to assume here in verses 6 and 7 that the church was sharing in his sufferings. But how could they share in his suffering when he was not with them? So it doesn't mean that they were physically sharing in his suffering, but he goes on to tell them what kind of affliction he was in. He says they were burdened beyond their strength. They were weighed down. They despaired of life itself. It seemed the only answer to the extent of the affliction that he had been in was, was death. And from that, that point of sorrow, from that depth of suffering, he knew that he had to rely on God. The God who raises the dead can also deliver them from their deadly peril. So notice how he invites them to participate with him in his suffering. He instructs them in verse 11, you must help us by prayer. So they participate in his suffering by being aware of what his suffering is, by the fact that he is suffering, and they participate in his comfort through their prayers. Paul was, was making himself somewhat vulnerable here, especially to an audience that demanded status and power in his leaders. He was sharing his afflictions. He was letting them know his needs. This wasn't for a pity party, but for his survival. 
He could not make it without God's power, and he asked the church to pray for him, to, to suffer with him in this difficulty. You know, suffering is difficult. There are no easy answers when it comes to explaining why bad things happen to good people. And we know that we live in a world that is broken by sin, in which the powers of evil are still active. But we also know that God is powerful and good. And even though he could stop suffering, he sometimes allows us to experience it. So the question is, how do we respond to suffering in our community? When one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body hurts as well. Are you close enough to the body that you are able to get hurt? Are you willing to participate in the suffering of Christ, however he may call you to suffer? Not for the sake of suffering, and this isn't placing yourself in harm's way so that you can suffer, but it might require that you do lay down your life, that you are willing to deny yourself, to give up what might be easy or comfortable. And so as you suffer with Christ and suffer with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will be positioned to receive and give comfort in a way that you could never experience otherwise. So in addition to, to suffering with others, how are you giving comfort to those around you? How have you been blessed by Christ? How has your past experience of affliction with Christ and others equipped you to minister comfort to those near to you? As we heard earlier, and I would reiterate, I would, I would love to see the, the more experienced crowd reaching out to the less experienced um, people here in, in shepherding and mentoring and building and affirming and challenging sorts of relationships, relationships that comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. You know, the, the Church of Christ goes on for eternity. It goes on even when cathedrals burn or when congregations splinter. God has worked with the weak and the failures, and he will continue to work with us where we are. But if we want to increase the impact of this church on the community and bring glory to God's name, it will happen as we grow in our ability to suffer together and comfort each other. And that happens as we remember who God is, what God has done for us, and what he can do through us. Glory be to God.